Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology, our grand round series. Today, we're fortunate to have Dr. Len Calabrese from the Cleveland Clinic talking about IL-6 in health and disease. Good evening, Dr. Calabrese. This is to your health. There you go. Wine the rheumatologist. He made us famous on Room Now. Still believes in the wine. Thank you for that. So, uh, Lenny's been my guru on a lot of hot topics in the last month. Um, done some really good videos for us. I, I encourage you to look at that. Um, before we get into your Grand Rounds presentation today, Len, uh, I want to ask you about some of the recent data on hydroxychloroquine. Obviously, for over a month now, it's been like top bullet in the news, uh, advocated by the president, um, but yet the data hasn't been all that good. A lot of reasons why we're using hydroxychloroquine, but we've got a slew of either neutral or negative results, not really doing seroconversion as much as you'd like, or certainly not any better than not being treated with hydroxychloroquine. And then some of these reports about either more deaths or more cardiac outcomes. So the JAMA article by Borba talking, it's called a, the uh, uh, chlor, uh, I don't can't remember now. It's, it's basically a hydroxy, it's not hydroxychloroquine, it's chloroquine given um, in either a high dose or a usual dose. Um, and they found that the high dose patients had a more QT, uh, QTC prolongation and uh, more deaths. Again, uh, the, the thing about that study was it was prematurely halted uh, because of the deaths that were seen. I guess the question is, um, is this a fortuitous thing for rheumatologists in that Maybe the negative news about chloroquine will stop the wasting of the drug in people where it may not work, or should we still hold some hope for hydroxychloroquine in treating COVID patients? Uh, I mean, it, it's, a, it, it's a very good question. I don't have a simple answer, but I, my, my, my view of it is, is that we haven't seen the right study done to either give it thumbs up or thumbs down. I, you know the rationale well of why it could be uh, effective. Um, I don't see any use uh, for it, even empirically, with uh, with other compounds that have bad drug-drug interactions, like uh, azithromycin. Uh, um, and uh, as many of these studies, which have shown no effect, uh, make as little sense as some of the studies that have been positive. So. You know, the University of Minnesota studies are, are well-designed, well-powered, um, uh, uh, that are going to look both as prophylaxis, which I'm not as enthusiastic about, and early intervention. And so I say, you know, uh, the data will be the data. And the good news is, uh, I was talking to Kevin recently, he's amazed, as many of us are, at how fast these studies are done and how fast they're getting to print. It's amazing. It's unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable. I'm on uh, several DMCs for big studies that, I mean, they're virtually almost all enrolled. They're, they're just down to their last few. So the good news is just hang in there and maybe we'll know more soon. You know, in the video that um, we did at the opening of the crisis with you and Cassie, we talked about a number of issues and you brought up, I think the very um, important point that I think just people are starting to get a hold of now and that is these drugs that are, especially the rheumatic disease drugs, whether it's chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, baricitin, the IL-6 inhibitors, IL-1 inhibitors, et cetera, colchicine. The issue 
is it may not be as much as um, do they work or not, or is there rationale for them as much as when they're used and sequencing and timing. Do you want to explain your thoughts about that and tell me if you have any new thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that people are buying into this as a model um, that there is an early stage of triggering of innate immunity um, uh, with viral acquisition and intense viral proliferation, followed by uh, uh, receding uh, viral loads um, and uh, the development of adaptive immunity, make antibodies, we make cytotoxic lymphocytes, and in the vast majority of people, you know, the, it, it goes along and you get rid of this. But in a small percentage of young healthy people and in an unfriendly large percentage of people with, um, uh, who are older and with comorbidities, um, there is a, a lot of collateral damage, a lot of pyroptosis, and then this cytokine release phenotype. And so drugs that may be good at the beginning, like remdesivir, um, probably will have little activity uh, at the late stages. And drugs uh, that like the hundred immune-based therapies that are being tried in late stage may be disastrous at early stage because they may um, foreshorten or inhibit the development of robust adaptive immunity. So that I, I think that that model is good. Where we have made little progress, Jack, is in finding reliable biomarkers that actually trifurcate this. I mean, kind of you know it when you see it, but you know you'd like to you'd like to intervene not too late, not too early. So I, I, I think we're getting there. You know, we got single cell you know, flow and all kinds of sophisticated stuff coming down the pike, but um, I, I think it's a great model. So you hinted at the, um, the problem later in the phase where, or maybe one of the last phases that there's the bad phase of, of um, cytokine storm, cytokine excess, often associated with uh, the pulmonary and CNS demise and cytopenias and that whole picture that looks it's now called cytokine storm. It is macrophage activation. It's hemophagocytic syndrome. Um, uh, and everyone's talking IL-6, 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 but uh, is that, would that be your preferred target or what else should we be targeting there? Uh, yeah, I, I sent out a Twitter poll today. It's obviously 90% of people's preferred target. Uh, but I, I, I have equipoise there. I think there's a lot of interesting targets. And if you look at the biology, you know, TNF, IL-1, IL-6, IL-7, GMCSF, a slew of, um, of chemokines, um, interferon, which is defective early in phase one of disease, very nice work by Benjamin Terrier and several other groups, but in late stages, uh, a very exorbitant uh, and exuberant uh, interferon response. So you know, there are trials of every one of those going on. And uh, I think that a lot of them are attractive, but, you know, I have equipoise and, and, and I would accommodate a number of those studies and I would let people be enrolled. I mean, I don't know. I don't have the secret ballot. Well, I'm going to jump off screen and let you take over um, the presentation and, and tell the audience why you've gotten interested in this and uh, where you think we should be going. Fabulous. Well, I've been interested in IL-6 for at least 15 years. And um, 
as most of us who've been around for a while, this came um, uh, to us in the context of uh, being a, a critical cytokine and uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And at that time, most of us were very unfamiliar with diseases like multicentric Castleman's disease. And uh, we had yet to even know what cytokine release syndrome was and there were no CAR T cells. And who would imagine it would be used in vasculitis and who cared about neuromyelitis optica? So, you know, it's a, it's a cytokine that is in center stage. It's feeling the heat of, of the limelight right now. And I think that most of us think about it as a compartmentalized um, uh, biologic phenomenon. So I, I think it's really incredibly opportune to talk about it. Um, uh, what we know about it in health and disease. So I really appreciate the opportunity, Jack, and um, uh, everybody can see our new logo for the Faisenmeyer um, uh, Center at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, I'm a big Da Vinci guy and the macrocosm and the microcosm right in the middle of the immunologic synapse. So let's take it away. So first big shout out, this article just came out in the last week or two. I already sent an email to Ernie Choi uh, telling what a beautiful narrative review of the history of IL-6. So this actually came out after Jack and I had agreed on this topic. And uh, you can see from the senior author of this, um, uh, Professor Kishimoto, um, who is really the, the guy that discovered this. So let me walk you through a little bit of a story of IL-6 biology. And you can go back to this article and read it at your leisure. But you know, back in the 70s, we were just starting to understand cytokine biology. And you know, people were just starting to understand the relationship between T cells and B cells, that T cells actually provided help to B cells. Uh, people like Harvey Clayman had done work and, and uh, demonstrated they're probably secreted factors. And Kishimoto linked onto this. And he found that there is a factor secreted by T cells that could stimulate B cells to make immunoglobulin. And he called it B cell differentiating factor type two. You know, a few years later, as we entered the dawn of protein chemistry, it was sequenced and cloned and named IL-6. Well, other people were studying other phenomena. Uh, with the things to activate T cells. Uh, take a half of a liver of a rat out and 10 days later it grows back because of a growth factor that turns out to be IL-6. And then there were uh, um, uh, bone factors, osteoclast inducing factor, uh, all IL-6. We now know that it belongs to a broad family of cytokines um, that share certain um, uh, uh, homologous um, signaling um, uh, mechanisms that we'll talk about. So great paper, go to it. When we say master player, we often use the word pleomorphic. And I think the thing to think about for IL-6 is that, you know, it is produced by uh, this wide array of both uh, uh, hematopoietic and viscerosomatic cells. I'm showing you this cartoon on the top. And furthermore, it leads to signaling within um, this remarkable array of hematopoietic, all our cells of innate and adaptive immunity, and viscerosomatic cells. So it really is a, a pivot point uh, between immunity 
um, and uh, the uh, 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 the body as a whole um, in uh, so many different biologic processes. Now, much has been made out of uh, the signaling uh, pathway of IL-6 and uh, my uh, good friend and um, uh, uh, collaborator, uh, Stefan Rosejohn, who has contributed so mightily to our understanding of this. Uh, this is from a, a paper that we um, uh, put out in about 2014. Um, the, the bottom line is twofold. Number one, very few cells express the IL-6 receptor. Hematopoietic cells, uh, hepatocytes, perhaps some bowel cells. Yet we know that it can lead to signaling in virtually any nucleated mammalian cell. The reason is, is that the IL-6 receptor is solubilized. We all know this now. Uh, IL-6 binds to that um, soluble receptor, and then it lights to the surface of a cell that expresses a molecule called GP-130, which is widely expressed. And um, uh, in contradistinction to the IL-6 uh, receptor-bearing cells, uh, which we call cis-signaling, this is called trans-signaling. So um, uh, uh, this is uh, the, the, the pathway. Now, if you think of other cytokines that we're so familiar with, TNF, when we shed a TNF receptor, it actually serves as a buffer against TNF signaling. But IL-6 receptor actually facilitates signaling. Um, there's yet a third type of signaling um, uh, called transpresentation that we don't understand the biology, and I, I don't have time to talk about it tonight. But why do we need two pathways? I mean, everything in immunology is poetry. And <laughs> you don't have to be a molecular biology, uh, biologist to, to ask the, the right questions. You know, why do we need cis and trans signaling? Well, before I answer that in a teleologic way, let me point out, because I, I, I've just been in the middle of a lot of conversations with a lot of smart people at our place talking about IL-6 levels, and they don't understand uh, the, uh, the IL-6 levels, and should we be using it as a biomarker? IL-6 uh, circulates in very scant amounts, one to five picograms per ml, 10 to the minus 12. Um, yet the soluble receptor uh, circulates in 40 to 60 nanograms per ml, three log phases greater. So it serves as a buffer, it can sop it up. Soluble GP130, that signaling protein, uh, is even greater. So there's this in, uh, inherent buffer system, which IL-6 has to exceed uh, before um, uh, you see uh, any type of biologic activity. Now, the immune system is, you know, beautiful and poetic, as I like to say. And it, uh, this um, figure uh, on the left shows that in homeostatic terms, there is a balance between these effector pathways on the right. Um, effector T and B cells uh, being activated by upstream innate um, um, uh, activation pathways, and then this elaboration of inflammatory cytokines, of which IL-6 is in the middle. And then on the left, we have these uh, tolerance and regulatory factors, everything from Tregs and Bregs and regulatory dendritic cells, etc., and suppressor cytokines. When there is perturbation of this relationship, we drive inflammation. Um, in 
things like cytokine release that we'll talk about, it is fulminant and fatal. But more commonly, it's low grade. And IL-6 can uh, mediate, as I will show you, uh, both um, uh, 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 the chronic low grade inflammatory pathways and the acute and the fulminant uh, pathways. On the right, we show um, a, a canonical um, uh, evolution of T cells. T cells emigrate from the thymus as naive cells. Um, uh, they display uh, CD4, CD8, um, but those CD4 cells then can be polarized in cytokine milieus to do the bidding of the immune system. If there's danger, uh, the dendritic cell tells them what the danger signal is, where it's at, what's the nature of it, how to get rid of it and kill it. Um, IL-6 is a big driver of T cell differentiation, particularly for the TH17 pathway, and it's also a suppressor um, of T regulatory function. So it tilts those scales towards inflammation. I think everyone can appreciate that um, um, uh, as this is shown in this cartoon. Now, the last thing I wanted to mention is that why do we need cis and trans signaling? Cis signaling expressed by these few cells of hematopoietic and hepatic origin is probably a physiologic um, regulator. Um, trans signaling is probably a stress pathway. And uh, hence, um, the ideal drug in some people's minds would be to suppress trans signaling and to leave cis signaling alone. We don't have drugs uh, uh, in our field that can do that right now, but people are working on them. This is um, one of the most important papers of 2019. This came out December 6th. Uh, Furman, the first author. Um, I've uh, talked to, uh, with Jack about this on several occasions. This is a narrative review by some of the most outstanding basic uh, clinical and translational immunologists um, in the world. And as you can see, several rheumatologists um, uh, contributing to this as well. And what this is, uh, this article uh, basically um, uh, proposed is that we are in an epidemic of chronic low-grade inflammatory disease that accounts for 60% of all mortality. Um, patients with low-grade uh, low patients, people with low-grade um, inflammation, have uh, higher rates of type 2 diabetes, um, uh, accelerated cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome, fatty liver, um, also contributes to a lot of immune-mediated diseases and probably neurodegenerative diseases as well. We have biomarkers for this. Uh, CRP, as you know, um, uh, a reliable and downstream um, uh, molecule from the IL-6 pathway uh, is correlated with a number of uh, comorbidities, and we're now seeing this in the COVID era, that all of those diseases, all of those, and hypertension to that, chronic renal disease, all characterized by low-grade inflammatory disease, um, are very bad um, uh, for patients who acquire um, uh, COVID-19 disease. Um, as we think about IL-6 and health and disease, uh, we're rheumatologists. We know what inflammation is, and we know that evolutionary, on an evolutionary basis, um, this process has been conserved. When we have acute injury, we need inflammation followed by repair. This is physiologic. Uh, normal inflammation is self-limited. 
um, and uh, 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 the whole story of resolvance um, uh, uh, flows from this. But when inflammation is chronic and unbridled, even when it is low grade, this sterile state of uh, low grade inflammation leads to breakdown of tolerance um, and over time leads to end organ damage, particularly endothelial damage, and may contribute to autoimmunity, certainly contributes to things uh, such as measurable biomarkers like poor response to vaccines and lowered resistance to infection. So, I, you know, it is driving me crazy. I'm sure it's driving most of you crazy that, you know, if you go on uh, social media or you go online, you know, everybody wants to sell somebody something, you know, take a pill and boost your immune system. You know, uh, uh, you can boost your immune system, but you have to do it the old fashioned way um, through behavioral change. There's no quick fixes for this. Um, so um, we are trying to attenuate this uh, and move on. So chronic inflammation, here's the, the uh, picture uh, showing, you know, uh, danger signals coming. Um, these are internal danger signals. As you can see, everything from uric acid to the products of pyroptosis. Um, that, um, you know, when we can't take the garbage out, generates a chronic low-grade inflammatory signal, um, which uh, inhibits uh, healthy immune responses, um, may uh, uh, perturb angiogenesis, uh, alter uh, proliferation uh, and uh, 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 autophagy, all leading uh, to this epidemic of chronic low-grade in inflammation. Infections can drive this, but for the most part, this is sterile inflammation. And on the right, I show you know the latest thinking that brain and immune system are one organ. They, the immune system has been referred to, and I love to think of it, as the brain's seventh sense. And that when we have a chronic social disruption, chronic psychosocial stress, like most of us are having right now, um, those pathways of acute inflammation um, are co-opted, and that leads to perturbation um, of inflammatory pathways, dysautonomia. We all know that you know, immunoautonomics is the uh, hot topic right now, and the generation of chronic low-grade inflammation, uh, glucocorticoid resistance, um, and uh, contributes to this phenomenon. So systemic chronic inflammation and disease I've given you the diseases that are out there. Uh, I don't have to convince you that CRP is an important biomarker. We have proof of concept trials that even though IL-6, IL-1 inhibition is, did not make it to regulatory approval, um, it lowers the risks of MI death and even reduces the rate of cancer. So it's a proof of concept. This methotrexate was not effective, doesn't mean that the concept that Chronic low-grade inflammation um, drives this. And then we know that um, TNF inhibitors and actually good DMAR therapy lowers cardiovascular uh, risks and can um, uh, uh, partially reverse insulin resistance and uh, RA, um, and that biomarkers, including CRP, correlate with much mortality in the general population. My final slide on this is the term that I love. I love the exposome. It is the measure of all exposures um, of an individual over a lifetime and how these exposures relate to health. Of course, I think in terms of the immunologic exposome, you know, how we eat, how we sleep, how we exercise, how we de-stress, 
all of this affects our inflammatory pathways. And there is a copious evidence from uh, 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 well-designed trials um, that uh, Mediterranean or paleo diets uh, can lower um, inflammatory markers and promote health versus the standard American diet or the SAD diet uh, with imprudent and bad fats at the other end. We know that moderate to vigorous physical uh, exercise can drive down um, uh, inflammatory uh, uh, markers, uh, maybe partially mediated through weight loss and epidemiologically lowers the risk for respiratory infections. We know that poor sleep inhibits vaccine response um, and, and correlated with all-cause mortality. And finally, we know that chronic stress and social disruption is associated with a um, transcriptomic profile uh, that has been called the conserved transcriptional response to adversity and shows upregulation of NF-kappa-B pathways. I've posted a monograph called How to Train and Maintain Your Immune System that we give to every single patient in our clinical immunology center, which gives a no baloney, no hoax, no, you know, bug nutty, um, uh, eat this berry and be healthy uh, approach to health and tells people about um, eating real food, eating uh, mostly plant-based, exercising moderately, how to get there, how to use cognitive behavioral approach to sleep restoration, and, and most importantly, how to adopt a stepwise program to mindfulness meditation. So go to Room Now, you can download this. We give it away for free. Uh, print it up, use it all that you want to be our guest. Um, the fact that IL-6 is involved in these pathways um, uh, in health and disease, as I'm pointing out, um, is so important for us. We know that, that IL-6 augments pain. And why? Nerves can be um, uh, activated by IL-6 signaling via trans-signaling. Um, and it actually lowers the threshold for activation. This has been shown in preclinical models and actually clinical models. When you perturb people's sleep at the beginning of the night, the AM circadian peak of IL-6 increases. And people like Michael Irwin um, at UCLA has demonstrated that it'll actually raise DAS scores uh, over uh, 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 the near-term future. And that in people with intercurrent mood disorders, such as depression, and chronic anxiety, multiple biomarkers are perturbed, and we know that hypothalamic pituitary axis is disturbed, but the most reliable biomarker in major mood disorders is elevated IL-6, both in CSF and peripheral blood. So all of these things, I'm condensing, I'm making sound bites out of a lot of science, but that's our topic to talk about this. Probably most interesting and most perplexing is the role of IL-6 in energy um, metabolism. And here, I think you really get the flavor of this cis-trans signaling. Um, when we exercise, if you go out and you know, burn a treadmill, uh, get to your VO2 max, your IL-6 level may go from uh, two picograms to 70 or uh, 100 picograms. It can go up by you know, nearly two log phases. Um, why does it do that? Well, it's very important in repair. The source of IL-6 in that setting is muscle. Um, and it actually facilitates um, energy uh, metabolism and glucose uptake uh, acutely. Yet we all know that over time, as we age, 
As we gain body mass index, CRP levels rise, as do IL-6 levels rise. And over time, there's an increase, um, there's an, uh, 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 increase in insulin resistance and um, a, a trend toward adiposity um, um, uh, uh, with dysfunctional um, uh, uh, fat where um, uh, macrophages can be polarized by IL-6. Um, in the liver, IL, chronic IL-6 inhibits gluconeogenesis. Um, so um, it is very contextual. There have been studies done with IL-6 inhibitors that show that it actually can lead to partial reversal of insulin resistance. And what happens when you inhibit IL-6? People gain weight. So IL-6 can drive uh, central adiposity, but leads to peripheral wasting, just like a patient with chronic infection or cancer. Um, and uh, IL-6 inhibition usually gains, uh, people will gain uh, a few pounds over the ensuing six to 12 months. Um, this was a very interesting um, abstract of uh, Mark Genovese and a number of colleagues that actually demonstrated this. And um, I was gonna, uh, I will show you this data. It's a cerilumab study that showed uh, that when they looked at the diabetic patients uh, on uh, cerilumab with rheumatoid arthritis, um, uh, regardless of the dose, um, that um, at the end of the day, fasting glucose fell, um, hemoglobin A1C fell uh, almost uh, by, oh, by over a half a milligrams percent and weight gained slightly. Trends in the non-diabetics, but this is a proof of concept study that I think needs to be followed up on. Um, this is a wonderful paper uh, by uh, Stefan Rohn's, uh, John's group uh, from um, Nature Reviews and Drug Discovery. And I was going to talk about it uh, in terms of its um, this um, uh, trans presentation. But what I will point out here as I close is that we started to think about this drug as a disease that would help rheumatoid arthritis. But you know, over time, we found that it's also very pivotal in other rheumatic diseases. Giant cell arteritis was a pleasant surprise, and it is now, in my mind, the standard of care. Uh, where it will go in other large vessel vasculitides and PMR remains to be seen. Um, um, JIA of both polyarticular and systemic uh, uh, variants is also very sensitive to this. And then this disease, Castleman's disease, this kind of um, bridging of inflammatory and neoplastic disorder, um, uh, which is characterized uh, by a, a good percentage of them actually being infected with a human herpes virus uh, uh, um, called HHV8, which encodes its own IL-6. And in these people, they can have a, a chronic cytokine release uh, syndrome. And um, uh, several IL-6 inhibitors have been uh, approved for this. Um, in the last uh, few years, um, in some countries, not all countries, um, uh, IL-6 inhibitor has been uh, approved for NMO, uh, neuromyelitis op uh, optica, a disease mediated by antibodies uh, to uh, the aquaporin-4 uh, ion channel. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, it comes back to the notion, why, why this is a B-cell disease, an antibody disease, this is a rituximab disease. Well, in certain diseases, you know, IL-6 was initially called B-cell stimulatory factor uh, type two. 
um, and this may be belie its mechanism of action. And then in 2017, um, um, with the um, uh, approval of CAR T cell therapy for hematologic malignancies, which are now gaining traction uh, across the board in, in all types of different CAR T cells, you know, about half of these patients develop an inflammatory syndrome that is can be fatal. Um, and um, uh, Emily Whitehouse, the first child to survive this, um, that was cured by CAR T cells, you know, would have died, um, but they saw a signal um, um, uh, in cytokines that IL-6 was profoundly elevated. Um, and uh, uh, she was rescued by this, and it is now rescue therapy uh, for this disease. As we now go below the line, I think there's two areas of interest to us um, uh, greatly. One is in the area of treating immune-related adverse events from uh, 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 cancer immunotherapy, particularly checkpoint therapy, uh, where we have published a lot on this, and a lot of our patients with chronic um, polyarthritis and chronic polymyalgia that can't get off steroids have been salvaged by this. And now there are several protocols, I don't know if I have this here, um, um, uh, that are using IL-6 in combination with uh, uh, checkpoint inhibitors out of the gate to see if it improves their activity and decreases their side effects. And then finally, the COVID-19 story that I'll come to in a minute. Um, this is just uh, to remind me to talk about the CAR T-cell story. CAR T-cells will only increase in scope and they will increase in their lethality. We now have uh, what we call armored CAR T-cells um, that uh, do not long, don't get resistant to the tumors um, and we need ways of controlling this. Um, IL-6 is very effective. It doesn't work for all patients. TNF may, uh, anti-TNF may still have a role Anti-GMCSF may still have a role, um, and uh, other therapies are still um, in uh, therapy. Um, this is just looking at um, um, cytokine release syndrome after these and showing the data. You know, you don't have to be a statistician. Um, when you see the levels, look at the levels of IL-6 in these cytokine release patients. This is up five log phases. I'll point out that in patients with COVID, uh, most of the IL-6 levels are down here. Not very impressive compared to this. And then after a course of tocilizumab, everything comes down. Uh, temperature, heart rate, blood pressure stabilizes, and all the biomarkers go in the right direction. So this is our first hint that this is pretty, pretty hip stuff for cytokine release. And then finally, um, this is our uh, thinking of IL-6 as a preemptive target in cancer. Um, without having a lot of time to talk about this, because I want to spend time answering questions and discussing this with Jack, um, you know, IL-6 functions through JAK-STAT pathways. Um, and while several um, JAKs and STATs are uh, solicited, uh, JAK-1, STAT-3, uh, seem to be more hegemonous in this uh, activation pathway. And that there are downstream effector molecules uh, uh, from STAT3 that may contribute to tumorogenesis. There are some forms of malignancy, particularly some forms of hepatoma and some forms of lung, can lung cancer, 
where STAT3 is hyperactivated um, um, uh, and may actually drive uh, tumorogenesis. And as I show on the bottom, this is a clinicaltrials.gov study that is just getting underway where patients are given tocilizumab in combination with ipilimumab, an anti-CTLA-4, and nivolumab, an anti-PD-1, in patients with unresectable stage three or four melanoma. So this is, this is how the study is being done. And it's gonna be um, TOSI or placebo in combination with standard checkpoint therapy. And the endpoints are, how's the tumor do? How's the side effect profile go? Pretty amazing. So finally, uh, this is what uh, Jack was asking me at the beginning. This is a, um, um, a brief paper. I'll do a shout out for uh, Brian Mandel and the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine. They have a curbside consult, COVID consult uh, section where the articles are being posted by the day. Cassie has several papers up there. I have a few. Um, this is a figure that I put in in the first uh, uh, edition of this. This is how we envision um, COVID-19 disease, the asymptomatic stage of viral recognition and acquisition, a, a triggering of PAMPs um, and generating inflammation um, and the virus establishes. We know that viral loads decrease over time. Even people dying have lower viral loads than they did initially. Stage two, we're, we're acquiring adaptive immunity, specific antibody and um, uh, um, uh, viral specific T cells and B cells. Um, and here we start generating a more robust inflammatory response as the invaded cells die off, die off after the virus has penetrated them um, and they die of pyroptosis um, and release their products that damp receptors now pick up. And then in the unlucky small percentage, uh, develop this progressive um, end organ dysfunction and inflammatory syndrome that can look like a cytokine release syndrome. I do not like the language uh, that it is HLH or it's MAS, it is not. This is not CAR T cell uh, cytokine release syndrome. Um, you know, there are perturbations of cascades um, and networks of cytokines, but there's no reason to think that the same drugs um, you know, with, that will work equally as well in this pathway. There are, there are different um, uh, effector um, uh, mechanisms that we're only starting to understand through uh, big data, uh, artificial intelligence, um, and hopefully the generation of biomarkers. Yet, when we measure cytokines here, yeah, IL-6, IL-1, TNF, IL-8, uh, IL-7, um, uh, all elevated um, uh, cytokines such as GMCSF, which are not normally detectable in healthy people, are elevated, just like they're elevated in rheumatoid arthritis and synovial fluid. Um, uh, GCSF is elevated. You know, which are the bad actors? Interferon, which is defective in stage one, then becomes um, more uh, abundant and maybe contributing to immunopathogenesis in stage three. So there are now over a hundred different strategies out there um, to parse this stage three, and we'd like to be able to treat people right here. They've developed adaptive immunity. We won't suppress it, but they're not 
on a ventilator and they haven't developed ARDS um, and they don't have irreversible disease. So, you know, I kept this slide just to keep it blank until like, you know, the other day, because you can, you can find whatever you want to find in this space. Uh, there are um, uh, studies being spit out of uh, PubMed uh, that are not even peer reviewed right now on this and take your choices. Um, there are uh, uncontrolled studies showing that all IL-6 inhibitors have been beneficial. Um, there are some that have shown less benefit than others. Um, and the question is, you know, why is this happening? Is it, you know, too advanced disease or they're using it in, um, or is it the wrong drug? And as you, everyone knows um, that there are now several large international uh, RCTs um, that are being uh, uh, recruited, that are almost fully recruited uh, for both um, uh, tocilizumab and cerilumab, um, that we will have data in eight weeks and we won't be guessing. The next time that uh, Jack and I talk about this, um, we'll have, we'll have uh, hard data on this. You know, I keep my fingers crossed. I have equipoise that, you know, these are good targets to look at, but you know, there's other targets out there too. Um, this is uh, one of the, uh, this is ancient history. Wrote this way back in April 13th of 2020. Um, uh, I think that the, the, the figure I showed you, you can go rip that off for your talks on this. Uh, but the, the data are, are, are different right now. So um, these are the, you know, here, here's, the, here's our buddies. Uh, oh, I'm, I've, uh, I, I have, uh, I cut off um, uh, Xavier. He's standing over here. Um, uh, uh, Maxime uh, Dugados. Um, they say that Cerilumab uh, is, uh, or that uh, Tocilizumab is, great, but they didn't release the data. Um, and uh, New York Times says that Cerulean is not, but they don't release the data either. So, you know, scientists, um, you know, Lewis Thomas, one of my favorite all-time authors and, uh, you know, National Book Award winner 50 years ago for the lives of a cell. He said, you know, in science, when science meets the public, the public is well-motivated. They don't have guile but they want to believe in things that could be hoaxes. You know, president says hydroxychloroquine sounds good to him and drinking Clorox and light sounds good. Yeah, why not? Sounds, you know, he's an important guy. He said that. Investigators, scientists, you know, their makeup is that they're willing to say they're wrong when the data doesn't show it. So we have to stand up for science um, and, and, and hold the fort. So anybody that likes this chain of thought, please follow me on Twitter, L Calabrese DO. I try to feed about what's happening in immunology, Zen and fine wine and, uh, uh, a little bit of what's going on in uh, humanism. So I think that's the, that's the end. Um, those are the diseases that we, know about, but there's so much more coming uh, down the pike. And uh, I think I'll, I'll stop and I'll kind of bug out of here. All right, Len, that was great. Thanks very much for that.
I want to remind our audience that we're, we're now going to do some Q&A for the next uh, uh, 15, 20 minutes. Um, uh, Len, let's start with a few uh, questions from the audience. Um, uh, so there was one comment about the Brazilian study on QTC intervals that said uh, that the QTC intervals actually correlated with poor candidates, meaning that they were older and had more cardiovascular disease, rather than that, not just the QTC, but that death in that study did not correlate with QT, QT intervals prolongation, which was different, but it correlated more with poor candidates. So again, that might be, again, there's a lot of buzz around uh, the cardiac effects, but really it seems like it's the comorbidities and the, the setup factors of, you know, age and obesity and cardiovascular disease and diabetes that um, everyone really should be worried about. Well, I mean, I think that there's all that, but I mean, so many of those studies are confounded by, you know, crazy drug-drug interactions. And, you, you know, the, the vast majority of the studies that have shown the, the poorest outcomes and the most toxicity have been these hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin studies. And, you know, like, it's really not a hydroxychloroquine study. It's a study of hydroxychloroquine and a drug that has a serious drug-drug interaction. So call it what it is. I mean, I, I, I am not worried about 10 days of hydroxychloroquine monotherapy, by and large, in people um, uh, who are not critically ill. I just don't know that it works, but, it, you know, everybody... You know, and, and, with, and, and uh, the other half of these studies is combining it with, you know, things like, you know, uh, 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 antiretroviral drugs and things like this. So it's not a study of one drug. So um, one of our uh, uh, docs, uh, Dr. Horvath, wants to know if, he, if you think there's any difference between tocilizumab and cerilumab, either, I guess, in what you treat or in these COVID studies. Do you think it makes any, any difference? I can't imagine why it would be any different. I, I just can't. Uh, you know, I, they're both highly effective drugs in the same space. They are, you know, they 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 seem to work. Uh, uh, I mean, they're both anti-receptors. They both inhibit cis and trans signaling. You know, the their PDs are a little bit different. Their PK is a little bit different. It'll be hard for me to imagine that one will be lights out and the other is going to be a negative trial. But you know, it's not like. Uh, you know, uh, serucumab, that was an anti-IL-6, and it had a different toxicity profile, but I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I, yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. I don't, I don't know that I'd have a, a different thought. Um, we'll have to wait and see. What's that? We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I mean, I think that, 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 that right now, the real problem is you really can't be right or wrong right now because there, a lot of what's out there is bad data. But um, uh, one of our um, docs wants to know about tocilizumab and acute myocardial infarction. We talked about the search study and the anacanakinumab study and, you know, where it worked and it didn't work. Uh, would an IL-6 inhibitor work in that setting? Cardiovascular patient reducing, improving cardiac outcomes, might, could it work? Uh, you know, I... I... I don't even know what preclinical modeling is being done, but I will tell you that the Cleveland Clinic, we, we have a, 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 a experimental protocol that if you have COVID and you have cardiac involvement by troponins, uh, the study is using anti-IL-1. Hmm. 
um, checkpoint uh, inhibitor induced arthritis, unresponsive to stero steroids and DMARDs, would you prefer to use a TNF inhibitor or an IL-6 inhibitor? Actually, uh, I, I, at the moment, I mean, I, this isn't like a lights out uh, notion, but I feel that there are so many reasons um, to pursue anti-IL-6 therapy in there that uh, 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 Cassie and I have gra gravitated uh, mostly to um, uh, uh, going to IL-6 early. And there are uh, uh, both preclinical um, uh, tumor models where anti-IL-6 uh, actually enhances, um, you know, the uh, anti-tumoral effects of some of these therapies. So um, we know that it has a decent um, uh, 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 toxicity profile there. Uh, we're experienced with it. Um, and it, uh, it, it works very promptly. So uh, no head-to-head, -head, obviously, but um, it's just a comfort zone. I wish Cassie would uh, throw in on that if she was here. What are your thoughts on, on targeting IL-17 in the cytokine storm? Well, IL-17, it has been examined and it is elevated, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, if you, if you look at, at preclinical modeling of cytokine release, and you know, the, the oldest and simplest model is uh, to take a mouse uh, and expose it to LPS and then start measuring cytokines. And, you know, uh, you see this, you know, TNF, IL-1, IL-6, and then downstream, uh, you know, this panoply of inflammatory cytokines. So when we, when we talk about upstream cytokines, you know, IL-17, I, I expect it is downstream. So I wouldn't expect IL-17 to you know, have profound effects of turning off IL-6 and IL-1 and TNF, uh, unless you show me some data. Um, yet in maybe some end organ damage, it might be very, very, very vital. You know, the other cytokine that, you know, nobody is enthusiastic about, yet there are four clinical trials that we were talking about earlier, um, is GM-CSF, um, which is not detectable in healthy people. Um, and is highly upregulated in the lungs of people with ARDS and other forms of advanced uh, 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 disease. It's the product of innate immune cells, these CD14, CD16 activated monocytes. And uh, some people believe um, that it may be upstream of these other, you know, very basic inflammatory cytokines. I mean, we'll know um, uh, there's trials of you know, anti-GMCFS, anti-IL-1, anti-IL-6, anti-interferon. So a recent issue of Lancet, um, an article by Mark Feldman, Tiny Maney, and others yes. making a plea for TNF inhibitors in COVID. I mean, 3,000 words on the subject. They had a lot of good ideas. And there are a few trials of at least adalimumab and infliximab that I know of, but not as many as what we're seeing with other drugs. But do you think that that also makes some sense? I, I think it absolutely makes sense. I, 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 I think that, you know, look, we've been using TNF inhibitors in this IRAE world like crazy because they were available, they were empirically used. You know, um, a lot of people are concerned about the response on, uh, you know, the effects on host response to the virus. Yeah, you know, 
there's no evidence whatsoever that anti-TNF inhibits our a clinical response to influenza. It certainly doesn't inhibit our vaccine response to influenza. Uh, all the models are, you know, knockout models, which I don't think are relevant here. Um, I would have equipoise to put a patient in a study of anti-TNF. Um, uh, um, uh, but there, as you say, these there, I, I don't think there's any large-scale anti-TNF trials going on right now. Do you think our patients, because we have so many patients taking drugs that target these molecules. Um, might that be a reason why we're seeing so little COVID or so little bad COVID in our patients? A recent uh, MMWR report of 308 COVID infected people in Georgia looked at the um, comorbidity relationships. A quarter of the patients had no comorbidity. And then the usual ones played out, obesity, heart disease, et cetera. At the bottom of the list, you know, one to 2% had a rheumatologic immunologic disease with the elderly, like 50, 60 year old, having a 5% uh, representation. I think there's some evidence. I think it's partly because our patients are on these agents and these, and their disease is well controlled. What do you think? I mean, we've had some anecdotes of that, uh, of patients uh, uh, with very peculiar clinical courses to COVID-19. Um, at, at the minimum, I would say there is no smoking gun that they are overrepresented. You know, whether this all plays out, you know, let's look at the, at the COVID Room Alliance, you know, eight weeks from now dispassionately and see if we can get a little bit better handle on this. But uh, so far, you know, I, I kind of like, you know, got my fingers crossed that your observation is accurate, then uh, we'll see. Evan Leibowitz says that in his ICU and hospital, most of the COVID patients are overweight or obese. Is that a role for adipokines in, as a risk factor here? Or what do you think underlies the obesity risk factor issue? I, I think that the, the, the common denominator of all these things, uh, to me, is my, my hypothesis, is that it, it's a, a state of endothelial health. Every one of these comorbidities, whether it's type 2 diabetes or hypertension and, and obesity and chronic low-grade inflammation, um, you know, uh, uh, contributes, uh, and, and cardiac disease, of course, metabolic syndrome, um, to accelerated morbidity and mortality. And whether that is because those cells are vulnerable to infection, and there's already evidence that endothelial cells can be directly infected, uh, whether it makes them vulnerable to uh, complement-mediated activation and a procoagulant effect. And as you know, that uh, patients with COVID have uh, hyperthrombotic um, disease, both gross clots and, and you know, uh, D-dimers and um, uh, 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 clotting uh, pathways. Um, uh, I think that is the smoking gun. A beautiful paper, uh, 10 days ago by Jeffrey Lawrence and group showing that endothelial cells um, can be activated and damaged by complement uh, being uh, activated by COVID via lectin uh, uh, pathway. Uh, everything we, that you have sick endothelial cells, those are patients that, that get hammered. And that's what happens when you get old. And, so you know, David Knapp asked a question about patients who are not severely affected or asymptomatic. You know, it's supposedly 80 plus percent and there's a 15% that seem to progress, get respiratory symptoms, and then 
a subset of those who get really bad. But that's in that middle phase uh, that you gave in that graph. But there are, you put it, you point out one line when in fact there are two divergent lines with most people sort of um, having an adaptive immune response that seems to work. And there's others where it is insufficient or maybe there's an excess of an, of an innate signal. What do you think is going on and how do we differentiate? I do not think that people, I don't think there's much evidence that people are dying of overwhelming viral infections. Um, they are dying of collateral damage. Um, and I do believe that, uh, that the, this, whatever you want to call it, I'd like to call it cytokine release syndrome because it's, it, it, it's indigenous to this disease. It's not MAS, HLH, CAR T, JIA. It's its own dealio um, using the same players. And um, uh, I, I think that adaptive immunity helps, but um, uh, somehow people are unable to turn off this process. I keep using the term pyroptosis, but that is what's happening here. That's when cells don't die, you know, neatly and quietly, they explode and all of that. Um, those uh, damps and alarmins um, are setting off this pathway. If you look at the lung pathology, and I've learned so much about this from talking to these lung pathologists and critical care guys, this is pretty unique. You know, only a small fraction of them get ARDS pathologically. This is something different. I mean, you know, you've got activated macrophages, you've got a lot of you know, um, uh, alveolar damage, but they don't all have hyaline membranes. This is something, something unique. The, the trick will be is that no one can magically draw that line. I was talking to some of the top pulmonologists in the world today about this uh, on a conference call. You know, when does the patient declare himself as, you know, headed for the ventilator? You know, you, you know it in, you know, six hours beforehand, but you don't know it two days or 72 hours beforehand. You know, the oxygen goes up, but these people have these resilient lungs, you know, they're highly compliant. We don't have biomarkers for that now. So given that a lot of the damage is what accounts for the death and bad outcomes, should rheumatologists be playing a bigger role in managing COVID patients? I mean, these are all these drugs we're talking about are ones that we're good at. Well, I think, uh, and I'm sure it's your place, it's the same, that any place that is doing clinical trials um, in COVID uh, needs to have people uh, like us, um, you, you know, mano a mano, um, uh, working on these protocols. And uh, Cassie's on a number of them. I've consulted, and Brian Mandel has consulted. Uh, to virtually all the decision making, you know, they do need our help. They, you know, it, 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 it's not that we're smart and they're dumb. They're they're in our they're in our sandbox with, with our drugs, just like IRAEs. So uh, I think this is a, an incredible interprofessional um, uh, disease. You know, I, I said you know we kind of fancy ourselves at the clinic as being at this nexus of room and ID. I said, you know, of all the gin joints in all the world, COVID-19 walked into ours. You know, this is this is what we do for a living here. So uh, we're, we're, we're proud to contribute and we're very humble to learn from these guys. You know, I've learned more critical care medicine than I, now than I, I ever knew. 
heard Baraf asked about the JAK inhibitors and their role in this syndrome and can they compete with the IL-6 inhibitors, especially uh, at that, you know, those, that end stage there? I do not, you know, I have been looking at this. I'd love to get your take on this. And, you know, the, the modeling of this is very, very different than the cytokine inhibition. You know, the first uh, data was generated by, um, you know, uh, machine learning uh, that showed that, you know, baricitinib and uh, roxolitinib and one of these other ones I've never even heard of, you know, would be particularly uh, valuable in COVID-19 infection because, uh, not because it was inhibiting cytokines, is because it inhibited viral entry. And, you know, there are these uh, crazy um, uh, kinases uh, that after ACE2 binding, then contribute to membrane fusion. These are molecules I'd never even heard of in my life. Um, uh, and so um, that's interesting, but that's upstream, I think. You know, that's when the virus is proliferating. Uh, I would want to be using a drug that inhibits interferon in the middle pathway, because you need interferon for the antiviral response. Um, I know that there are RCTs of all of these drugs going on, Right. Um, but I would be wanting to use them in, in you, you know, after adaptive immunity is established. Yeah, I'm probably wrong on all of this stuff, but um, you, you have to think of like where in the in the process is the MOA working. Um, doctors Casino uh, and and Fung have asked questions about measuring IL six. Would you do them? What does it mean? You know, yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, I don't, you don't need it. You don't need it to manage this disease. Um, to, to clinically recognize cytokine release is, is relatively simple. And CRP and ferritin and D-dimers and, uh, you know, uh, falling lymphocyte counts, all of the things that we see in other cytokine release syndromes of other nosology are effective. I told you the IL-6 levels, uh, which we do, um, you know, they go up, but they don't go up by more than a couple log phases. And then you give tocilizumab or cerulimab, and then they go, hey, we checked the IL-6 afterwards, it's going up. Well, yeah, it is going up. So what do you want me to do about it? Like, why did we measure this? I told you not to measure this. So uh, no. if there was a cutoff, I would say do it, but we don't need it. Uh, last question from Dr. Zuckerman. Is there a role for anti-IL-6 therapy to moderate the prothrombotic effects seen in COVID? You know, it, it very well might be effective. I mean, you know, that Ian McInnes uh, looked at, you know, endothelial health um, in RA patients um, on tocilizumab, didn't find uh, dramatic effects on flow-mediated dilatation, but he found a lot of ex vivo effects on endothelial health. Um, you know, we don't understand the hypercoagulability right now. It's not DIC, uh, but it is a hypercoagulable state, and a lot of people are hot to trot on this. You know, there are also now a handful of anti-complement uh, strategies uh, in RCTs. And that may be a link between coagulation, tissue factor, endothelial health. Um, I, 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 my closing comment, Jack, is that, first of all, this is so exciting to be able to talk expansively about this uh, molecule, which 
so much to, to, to still be learned about. But I will tell you that six months from now, you know, hopefully when this thing is getting, you know, into the second half, hopefully into the fourth quarter, we will have learned so much. It never, ever in our, our whole lifetimes would we have imagined this, you know. This took from 1981 to 1997 to learn this much about HIV that we've learned about in three months. Right. And, and it's only going to go exponential from here. And I'm, I'm so grateful that, you know, I'll, I'll be here to throw my pebbles on the pile, as, as Sir William said. Well, Len, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate your leadership, your education and guidance on some very difficult issues. We look to you in now and in the future to help us with this. So uh, we really appreciate your being here. I want to end with a, um, uh, a pitch for next week and our speaker, who is going to be Joan Merrill. Um, she's going to talk about um, uh, what does COVID have to do with lupus. I think that's going to be an interesting talk, to say the least. And then also we're going to talk about um, in the weeks to come, we're going to have lectures, not just from Dr. Merrill, but you'll see we have a lecture the following week from, uh, from down under Philip Robinson, one of the fellows who started the Global Rheumatology Alliance and Peter Nash. They're going to talk about their experience. And then the week after that, it's going to be John Kay updating us on biosimilars. Len, thank you so much. Have a good night. Everybody stay safe. Thank you.